belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for June 27th, 2021 is called Arguing with God. The speaker is John Ray and the location is Pratt Place Barn in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Your dad doesn't want us doesn't want to live with us anymore. I remember exactly where I was standing when mom told these words to my little sister. It was in North Cross Mall in Austin, Texas, standing by the ice skating rink, and I was 12 years old. My little sister was nine. I remember the sound of the skaters. The darkness and coolness of the mall compared to the intense light and heat of the Texas summer outside. I remember saying that I wasn't going to let that happen and quickly walking off. I don't remember if I cried. I don't remember what happened next. I couldn't have gone far. I was 12. I couldn't cry. leave without it. The whole mall sort of skating right getting wet. Probably just made a leap. But so much changed when those words were spoken. Nothing was ever going to be the same for me after that. At the same time, nothing much changed. Dad was gone from home most of the time when I was a kid anyway, running our restaurant down the street. I saw him more there than at home. I went to the same schools. I had the same friends. But underneath, Something broke. Something shifted. I've spent the rest of my life trying to regain my footing from this and subsequent traumas, from the ordinary and from ordinary expected transitions in life. Rarely are we taught how to handle these transitions. Whether they're intensely personal and traumatic just to us, or whether they affect the whole society like we're encountering now. We're not taught what to do when something breaks. We're not taught to do what to do when the earth shifts. When something that we fundamentally relied upon and counted on is no longer there. Our text this week, though, gives us a glimpse into how we might just respond. So let's dig in and see what we can learn. And we're going to do this a little differently. We're going to hold the scripture from the end. We're going to approach it a little bit differently. But we're asking the question, what do we do when the life we imagine doesn't work out? But we still have to go on living. Because disruption happens. It doesn't mean we've been abandoned. It doesn't mean we're being punished. It doesn't even necessarily mean we've made a wrong turn. There is a constant need, however, to reorient our reality. And this starts with properly directed honesty. You see, and it also starts with how we approach Scripture. That honesty starts there. Do we come to use scripture just to take something from it? We talk a lot about how 
a very modern approach to the Bible is, is somehow to get Jesus to pimp our life out, right? Like, hey, we're basically doing okay. We just need a little Jesus juice to make it better, right? So we come, we come to the Word like a commodity, something we can take out. Or, or maybe we're going through a rough patch and we just need, we need some assurances and stuff that, hey, it's going to all work out. It's going to all be better. But we treat Scripture like a thing like a commodity instead of something to engage with and wrestle with. Not just to know, but to be known by. Scripture is not a commodity to be transacted with, but an invitation to engage with and be transformed by. We talk about in the teaching team how as you read the Bible, we read the words and we read the, the testimony of these interactions with people throughout centuries wrestling with God, that people are always trying to make God in their own image. We see this time and time again in the Bible, that the people are always trying to make God in their own image. If they can't do that, they'll find some idol that they can. But how even in the text, God is constantly subverting them. That God won't allow it. That God is constantly subverting the understanding and this, this image making that the people are doing with that. Scripture, as we understand it here at Grace, as we practice engaging with it, is an evolving argument. It's something that, that is constantly being revealed to us. New things are being revealed to us. But not just about it, but about us. And as we engage with it, the things are being revealed about us in that. And so that changes how we approach this. Theologians talk about Scripture as a progressive revelation. That what the patriarchs do, what Adam knew about God, what Moses knew about God, when Phoebe knew about God, when Mary knew about God, when Martha knew about God, that we actually have more knowledge in a way. We have more testimony, we have more time, we have more witness, and even language. So there's this progressive revelation. We're constantly learning more. And that just doesn't change about what we think about now, but it changes about how we think about people used to think about. God with God. Ultimately, we talk here in Grace about the two-dollar theological words, Christological hermeneutic. But basically, it's the Jesus is the key. So we come to understand Scripture through our encounter with the living Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus the Messiah reveals Scripture to us, but not the Scripture, but He reveals ourselves. We are open and exposed to Scripture and to God through that. And that's good news. Well, this is really good news. We're not left alone. We're not just giving a crony, kind of giving a rule book and say, hey, we're figuring it out. We're not giving it. That's not how it works. We're invited into this relationship, into this family, with this person of God. 
were not left alone with God. And that's especially good news in our current situation. We see everything that we're dealing with as a society. You know, people ask, how do you, how do you think about 2020? What do you think about the past year or 18 months? And like, I speak about it in terms of apocalypse. There's truly been apocalyptic in the, in the real sense of the word, the biblical sense of the word, which is just unveiling or revealing. And think about all the things that have been revealed through this pandemic, through the reckoning that we're having with systemic injustice and oppression, with all those things that have been revealed. It, it's profoundly unsettling. And not just sort of emotional or social, but also just the very practical, like Amy brought up earlier. I mean, our supply chains are, are disrupted. Our, our way of buying and selling, our, our idea of what, it, what a living wage is, or, or how to work, or, or who to work with, all these things are being disrupted. So what do we do with this? Do we just grin and bear it? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, just, hey, hey well, I'm excellent. Let's just make some more. Throw a bunch of cliches at it. Right? Hope it goes away. Do we just give up? I don't know. I'm done. I'm checking out. Just gonna go live in the woods. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> what do we what do we do with this? I think the most common temptation is just somehow to convince ourselves that if we just try hard enough, we'll just go back. Let's just let's just get back to where we were. Let's just let's just go back. Man, I can't wait for things to get back to normal. Anybody else heard that? Anybody said I just can't wait for things to get back to normal. What is normal? I had a really interesting conversation. This week over coffee with somebody who's moving back from overseas, having a really hard time coming back here, and they made the comment that said, it's taken us a long time to realize that we can never move back. We can just move there again. And they realized that how much of their thinking was, was affected by this idea of when they were coming back after years of the cities, they said, they kept saying, well, we're just going to go back. We're going to move back home. We're going to move back. Well, we can't move back, right? We just moved there again. And they were realizing how much things had changed and how they couldn't. Every time they wanted things to just be, be back the way they were, there was no, it wasn't there. And it was causing frustration and anxiety. Well, we're not going to go back. We never go back. It doesn't matter where we come from or what's happened. We don't go back. We have to reorient. And that's what we see going on in Scripture, right? Is that we're constantly reorienting. We're constantly relearning and adapting. We're constantly having to be asked and assess where we go. As we encounter the people in Isaiah, as we have through this whole study, it's hard not to make a connection with what we've endured and what we're still, in some degree, enduring with the pandemic. 
is a people in exile, people cut off, people who no longer can live the life that they were living. I don't want to take it too far, right? Like, we haven't been carted off as prisoners as they have. But there are a lot of emotional similarities between Isaiah and between what we're encountering. And on top of that, even if we weren't going through this, all of us at some time in our life is going to have that profound trauma in Loss, divorce, bankruptcy, cancer, whatever it is. No. So what do we do? What do we do? And how do we do this as a church? Look, y'all, I'm I'm really profoundly grateful that you're here this morning. But I also don't want to give you a false impression that we've got this figured out. We're all learning what it is like to do church now. All of us together are trying to figure out what what does it mean to be a church? How do we do church? How do we church? Because we can't go back. We're never going to go back to doing church the way we were. What does it mean going forward? How are we going to do this? What does it mean now with the revelation that we have? How do we church, do church together? And this is an invitation that I want to give to everybody, is to wrestle with this together. All of us are going to need to wrestle with this together. If you're looking for me to have the answers, just let me stop you right now. I, I don't have the answers. If you're looking for the catalyst team, Alex and Burrell, Stacy and Teresa to, to, to have it all figured out and just come offer it to you on a plate, it's not going to happen. Every time we meet, we're constantly evaluating, we're constantly asking, we're constantly seeking wisdom, we're constantly praying. How do we do this? How do we walk forward? And that is that is a task for all of us as we walk forward with this. But we have hope. Like I said earlier, there is good news in this. Because scripture is constantly inviting us to wrestle with it. The Holy Spirit is constantly present with us to enlighten us. Jesus is constantly working for our good and God's glory in all of this. I mean, it's, it's, I was thinking through this whole thing, and it hit me, it hit me afresh. John 1, 1, what's it say? Anybody remember? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Talking about Jesus. Jesus is literally the Word in flesh. Not only the author of Scripture, but Scripture in Bible. Okay? Jesus, constantly we see this when Jesus is teaching something. He'll walk up to somebody and he'll say, Hey, Ryan, what what does the Scripture say? And immediately after that, he'll follow up with, and how do you read it? Y'all, I got goosebumps, like, just thinking about it. Like, like we live in a society that uses Scripture to, to, to beat other people up with. Like, to offer these, these profound or ironclad, black and white edicts to, to sort who's in and who's out, to divide and to hurt people with. They say, what does scripture say? Period. 
And what they're saying is, in truth, is my interpretation of Scripture is my interpretation of Scripture is about is what they're eating. Jesus doesn't do that. <laughs> the, the one who could, right? The, the only one who legitimately could do that doesn't. Jesus says, what does scripture say? Kelly, how do you read it? Amy, how do you read it? Jeff, how do you read it? Carter, how do you read it? And the sign himself invites us, invites our world. He wants to know, is including us in this process. It's, it's staggering in its implications that this is what's happening. Utterly staggering in those situations. Sorry, I could go on quite a bit about that. But I want to talk about the text this morning. So, all that is set up for how we're going to read our Isaiah text this morning. So, first of all, we have to remember that this is written to a people who are slowly returning from exile, captivity in Babylon. Jerusalem is occupied by others. Foreign nations have come in, taken over their homes. And the temple is destroyed. Their wealth is wiped out. Their best hope at this time is to become like a client state for another empire. Like this is not a return to glory. This is not a return to the time of King Solomon or David. This is like best hope is to become like maybe get a little bit of autonomy without having to drain the coffers too much to pay off the oppressive nation. Watch you over this. Now, also. Give me just a minute. I got to geek out. Okay. So I just came across this article in the Smithsonian Magazine, right? Because we're talking, a lot of times when we talk about scripture and we do this, we kind of think in flannel graph pictures or that it's just Sunday school stuff. It's not real history. Like it's Bible history, but that's different from real history. Listen to this. This is so freaking cool. Okay. A farmer in northeastern Egypt, this is just a today article from Smithsonian was preparing his land for crop planting when he discovered an intricately carved sandstone slab that appears to be installed by the Pharaoh at least 2,600 years ago. 2,600 years ago. Does anybody, anybody connect yet? When this thing in Isaiah was written was about 2,600 years ago. So he finds the sandstone from the Pharaoh. It was a standing stone, also known as a stella, it was about eight feet tall, over three feet wide, features all these hieroglyphics, right? And it was known that this that this um, Pharaoh was also known in Hebrew as Hapra, which we find he's the one who King Zedekiah went to try to to. To be an ally to warn off to fight against the Babylonians. Like they found this huge thing. And he's the one also who accepted refugees from Israel when they were carried off to Babylonian captivity. I know you're also here doing great job. Like, I'm sorry, this is really exciting to me. Like, this is cool because before this, this particular Pharaoh is mentioned most often in biblical literature, not in regular 
kind of world history stuff. So finding this evidence outside by this farmer is, is incredible. It's really cool stuff. So anyway, I say what I'd say, hey, we're talking about real people in real time, okay, when we read these things. Um, and then we come to this chapter. We come to this chapter in Isaiah. So we know that the people are dealing with this, much like we're dealing with our own disorientation. And what we're going to do now is we're going to reenact the scripture. All right? So I need our, our people to come up. And I need our voice of God to come up. You can stand there over here, okay? Amy, come over here. Amy needs Amy needs stations. Right. Please. We need we need a mob voice of God here. So I'm gonna do the narrating. Okay, so so I'm gonna begin. So this is how we learn to read scripture too. We read it sometimes like it's just um, beautiful. There's just one voice, but really in the scripture we have three voices going on. We have the voice of God, we have the narrator, and then we have the people's response to it. And I want you to pay particular attention to the people's response to what is said here. So I'm the narrator. I'm sorry. Well, the watchman called out. Who goes there? Marching out of Edom, out of Bazram, in clothes dyed in red. Name yourself so splendidly dressed. Advance, bristling with power. It is I. I speak in stripes. I am mighty to speak. And why are your robes red? Your clothes dyed red like those who drink grapes. I have been saying like a slow. No one there to help me. Angrily, I stop the grapes. Raging, I shake with the people. Their blood skirted all over me. All my clothes are soaked with blood. I was set on vengeance. Time for redemption had arrived. I looked around for someone to help. No one. I couldn't believe it. Not with one volunteer. So I went ahead and did it myself. Fed and fueled by my rage, I trampled the people in my anger, crushed them underfoot in my wrath, and soaked the earth with their lifeblood. I will make a list of all God's glorious healings, all the things God has done that need praising, all the generous bounties of God. His great loving kindness to the family of Israel, compassion lavish, love extravagant. He said, without question, these are my people, children who would never betray me. So he became their savior in all their troubles. He was troubled too. He didn't send out someone else to help them. He did it himself in person, out of his own love and pity to redeem them. He rescued them and carried them for a long, long time. But they turned on him. They grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned away from them. Became their enemy and fought them. Then they remembered the old days, the days of Moses, God's servant. Where is he who brought the shepherds of his flock up and out of the sea? What happened to the one who set his Holy Spirit within them? Who linked his arms with Moses' right arm, divided the waters before them, making him famous forever after, and led them through the muddy abyss, as sure-footed as horses on the hard level ground, like a herd of cattle in the pasture? The Spirit of God gave them rest. That's how you rest your people. That's how you became so famous. Look down from heaven. Look at us. Look out the window of your holy and magnificent house. Whatever happened to your passion, your famous mighty past, your heartfelt pity, 
your compassion for the people in God. You are our Father. Abraham and Israel are long dead. They wouldn't know us from Adam. But you are our living Father, our Redeemer, famous from eternity. Why, God, did you make us father from your race? Why did you make us bold and stubborn so that we no longer worship you in awe? Turn back for the sake of your servants. You are us. We belong to you. For a while, we were holy people out of the but now our enemies gather right to the holy place. For a long time now, you paid no attention to us. It's like you never knew us. Kind of pushback, you know? Do you hear the pathos of the people's response? I mean, in spite of all the evidence, right? In spite of all these, this list of glorious things, and in spite of God, in a way, taking this big picture objective view, bloody as it is in this section, saying, I'm the one that controls, I'm the one that lifts up and calls down, I'm the one. Who allows empires to rise and empires to fall? People's visceral response is, but what about us? What about us? It's okay to ask that question. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to engage in this way. It says, I get it, God, but I don't get it. I see it, God, but I don't see it. It's okay to do that. That's how we reorient. That's how we learn to be the church That's how we learn to follow faithfully. We have to start there with being honest. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.